Air Force veteran Michelle Labrosse was an aerospace engineer in the Air Force, but discovered she had a passion for project management and ultimately entrepreneurship. Michelle founded Cheetah Project Management, the gold standard in project management education. Up next on Veteran on the Move. Welcome to Veteran on the Move. If you're a veteran in transition, an entrepreneur wannabe, or someone still stuck in that J-O-B trying to escape, this podcast is dedicated to your success. And now, your host, Joe Crane. As a member-owned not-for-profit, Navy Federal puts members at the heart of every single thing that they do. At Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Find out more at NavyFederal.org. All right, we're talking with Air Force veteran Michelle Labrosse, founder of Cheetah Learning, which is a, a project management learning uh, and education system. Uh, Michelle, thanks for being here today. Before we get started with all the great things you've done in entrepreneurship over the years, take us back, tell us what you did in the Air Force. Yeah, the, I was an aerospace engineer. I think I was a 2855. It's my, my specialty number in the Air Force. And uh, I worked at Wright-Patterson. I was stationed at Wright-Patterson. And I was a loads and dynamics engineer. I was also a vibration specialist. So <laughs> very detailed technical things I did. But uh, I worked in a lot of upgrading systems. Like one of my projects was upgrading the, um, it's called the Seek Eagle project. We upgraded the armaments for the F-15. I also worked on the V-22 Osprey when it was still in wind tunnel testing. And that was exciting wow. uh, because we saw, I saw it, the, the wind tunnel test of the whole item the whole it was million dollar fail it flew off the stand in the middle of the night and again hit the wall and had massive aerodynamic instability. Talk about and a vibration nightmare. It was a vibration nightmare. And maybe it was when those wings broke when the engines rotated on the wings, it caused this massive catastrophic failure mode and very, very uh tough engineering problems with that plane, with the, those rotational engines. Uh, those are two of the big projects I worked on. And then um, I knew that I wasn't going to make the Air Force a career. I was in for seven years, and it was time for me to spread my wings. And I talked to my boss. I worked for a civilian boss, and uh, it was an interesting – Ray Patterson was an interesting base because it was mostly civilians. And I let him know that – I said, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to make the Air Force a career, and I want – I don't want to just stay in aerospace. I want to be able to have – other options that what I can do with my, my career. And so he said, well, we have an electronics office, electronic warfare countermeasures office that needs a mechanical engineer in there. And none of my guys want to go there because it was, and it is an interesting pecking order in engineering. Electrical engineers see themselves as the top of the hierarchy <laughs> and anybody else below them is lower on man on the totem pole. So the other aerospace engineers in my office didn't want to go work in that office. And I said, well, there's a lot of electronic companies out there. I could have many more job prospects. So I gladly took the office. It was a great, great job. And I had, I was supporting as the only mechanical engineer, 40 different projects. And so I was making a ton of contacts because I was the electronic reliability specialist for all of these electronic systems and they have to work in really difficult environments like the black boxes, right? We were, yeah. we were the that was buying the black boxes. Well, those black boxes have to survive a catastrophic situations, but it's not just the black boxes. I mean, you put any electronics on planes, they go through massive environmental uh, degradation. 
and, and vibrations and heating and cooling. And I learned a ton in that position and it helped me set my first company up. So I, I didn't really realize when I asked for that job that I was going to be running my own company. But I knew that I was going to get out of the Air Force and I was thinking, okay, I don't want to just be limited to work for an aerospace company. I want to expand my options. So I started planning my exit before, well before I got out with my neck, my, my assignment. And it worked out great for everybody because my boss had a problem putting somebody in that position that was going to be excited and do a good job. And I wanted it. I wanted it. So it was a really, really fantastic yeah. ma- marriage there. So what's the uh, hierarchy pecking order of electrical guys? Like say they're top. And then the electrical, chemical, next? aerospace, electrical, chemicals are also, chemical engineers are also very full of themselves. Nuclear <laughs> engineers as well. I'm going to say aerospace engineers. Yes, we are full of ourselves too. But <laughs> But, you know, it's, it's so funny because I've done a lot with alternative energy over the years, right? Mm-hmm. So not, not in the military and in my own personal interest. But we always looked at the energy, the, the electrical grid guys as kind of lower, lower on the total pole, the power grids. And it was so funny. My nephew, he just graduated from college, a master's in acoustics engineering, and he took a green energy job. And I'm like, you know, you have to give a kiss of death there as an engineer. You kind of might want to step it up a little. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, windmills, windmills are interesting, but they're not that technologically complicated. I mean, the technological complexity in the windmill comes in the material design and the strength of the material. Right. Uh, you know, from a complexity perspective, well, yeah, you know, it's not that complex solar panels. Yeah, well, we can improve the material. So when you look at when you look at the complexity, that's really where you're looking at the fi- mental firepower. I mean, when you're looking at nanotechnology, that's really complicated, yeah. right? And you're looking at vibrations is very complicated because you're dealing with Laplacian transforms and some really complicated math. So yeah, I had my creds as a vibrations engineer with the electrical people. They had some respect for me because I knew Laplacian transforms, but um <laughs> You know, aerospace also, when you have complex fluid dynamics that you're working on, I have this really good friend from college that runs a complicated software company for complex fluid dynamics. He's a pretty bright guy. So I'm sure he's pretty high up there on the pecking order. But, uh, and you know, let's civil engineers. I love civil engineers. I don't want to throw them under the bus, but you know, in, in college, we always looked at those people as the ones who couldn't do couldn't do the other engineering courses. And if you <laughs> if you had to like take a step down, you wanted to stay in engineering. You usually went into civil. But uh, I still think civil's tough. I mean, I know a lot more PEs that are civil engineers than I do any mechanical or aerospace PEs. So. Yeah, so this is funny. Then, you're like industrial this. engineers, like finally bring up the rear behind civil, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, we call them imaginary engineers. <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I say that and, and, you know, what did I, I worked on my PhD in industrial engineering. So uh, obviously I have some respect for it. I mean, industrial engineering is really, I'm, it's, it's really a fascinating field, but yeah. uh, you can make some massive improvements in over the way organizations and manufacturing operate, manufacturing operations operate in industrial engineering. So I think that we need to get rid of the pecking order. I mean, I just, I just don't think it helps anybody. I think that we engineers need to get off our high horse. Yeah. And 
That's just fun to talk about that. Yeah, like a lot of people probably don't realize there is somewhat of a pecking order in the engineering world. It's it's funny. So, uh, so talk about your transitions. So, did you you were in that mechanical engineering focused job and glad to be there? Did you get out and then take and take a Air Force civilian job right away, or did you go into entrepreneurship? I went right into entrepreneurship. So what was fascinating, so this is 1987, all right? So we're, we're like, I don't have enough gray hair to get out of the military in 1987, mm-hmm. but I might just good, good, good genes, nothing more than that. But, so, uh, you know, I can't, I can't claim credit for my hair not being too gray, but, um, you know, I don't diet. So I was taking classes at the library and using the internet for research. This is when DARPAnet was big, okay? <laughs> and it was just really fascinating to me, you know, research, research scientist type person. And I was talking to the librarian about what I wanted to do when I got out of the military. And I had gotten into designing electrical test requirements for environmental. So there was a big transition going on in 87. And, and how the Air Force was specifying purchasing electronic systems. They were telling, they used to tell the contractor exactly how to test the electronics. They were changing to say, hey, look, you need to make the electronics to be able to work on the F-15 or whatever playing system they were going to. And then the contractor had to come back and say, what am I going to do to make sure my electronic system works on the F-15? That's a big change than saying to the contractor, look, you have to design this piece of electronics to X, Y, Z specification, right? Yeah. So the contractors had no idea how to do this. I mean, basically we just took an eight year old and we said, you need to make the decisions for the rest of your life. I mean, how do you take an industry where you've always told them how to do things and say, Hey, look, we're not going to, you were saying you have to tell us how you're doing them. They had no capability to tell us how they were going to be doing things. So I saw that as an opportunity to teach them how to specify the correct test specs for their equipment. And I set my consulting company up to do that. It was called Environmental Requirement Associates, right? So, all right, I had no clue how to go about doing this. So I had, the Air Force had taught me how to do presentations. And I was doing presentations about this new change that the military was making, because it wasn't just the Air Force, it was a, tri-service effort that I was a part of, and it was called Mill Standard 810. And so I was part of that tri-service group that was rolling out this new Mill Standard. And I was talking to the librarian about what I wanted to do. And it was funny because I had never even heard the word entrepreneur. I mean, like, you'd think as an engineer I would be smarter than that, but I was just so focused on academia and military that I wasn't thinking business at all, yeah. right? I mean, like, we, I didn't have many. I didn't have any business classes in engineering school, and I had to get my engineering degree in four years, or I would lose my Air Force scholarship and have to go. I mean, I was going to be an officer, and if you don't finish your engineering degree, they used to have to serve your time. But you have to go in enlisted. So all I did was engineering. I just, you know, gutted it through and got my engineering degree, and then I got a master's degree in mechanical engineering while I was in the Air Force. So. I had no business experience. So I was talking to the librarian about what my idea was when I got out of the military, what I wanted to do. And he goes, he goes, you know, I just got a book on that. <laughs> I said, really? And the book was how to run your own consulting company. Really? So he gave me the book and I read that. And I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do when I get out. It was a Lieutenant Colonel 
So I was in this office with four people and this Lieutenant Colonel, he wasn't in charge of us. He just had to walk past our cubicles and his office was behind ours. And I was telling the Lieutenant Colonel what I was going to do. He goes, oh, so you're going to be an entrepreneur. And I'm like, an entrepreneur? What's an entrepreneur? (laughs) I never even knew what an entrepreneur was. And uh, I guess I said, well, I better go look up what that means. It's hilarious. And and now, uh, now you're on a entrepreneur podcast. So um, I know I'm, yeah, I'm definitely an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur's entrepreneur at this stage of the game because I got really good at creating businesses <laughs> and uh, my first business did pretty well. Actually. I, um, I mean, it took off, but I knew it was going to have like a shelf life, right? Yeah. I got a lot of defense contractors for my clients and I actually landed a pretty big one. Can you hang on a second? Can we pause this? Yeah, we'll take a, a quick break. We'll be right back. Service isn't just what Navy Federal Credit Union does, it's who they are. That's why Navy Federal created tools to help you earn and save more. Make your financial goals a reality with great rates and low fees. Navy Federal Credit Union likes to reward their members for using their credit cards. And you can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases with the Cash Rewards card when you sign up for direct deposit. When you use the Navy Federal mobile app, you can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. Plus, rewards never expire. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, insured by NCUA. Open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans, and their families. Credit card value claim based on 2022 internal average APR assigned to members compared to advertised industry APR average, published on CreditCards.com. Terms and conditions apply. All right, back to with Air Force veteran Michelle Labrosse from Cheetah Learning. So you're, you're on your way out of the Air Force in some Air Force Lieutenant Colonel introduces you to the term entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. So, I mean, I, I want to talk a little bit about a mental safety net. Okay. So I was only 25 and I, I read every book I could about starting a business after that because he just really opened my mind up to this whole world. I always say that you're unconsciously incompetent, right? Like how do you know what you don't know until you know, you don't know it. Right. Right. So I just became a voracious consumer of starting business startup books. But 1987, there wasn't the, the amount of business startup books there are now. All right. So, I mean, I, I, I read stuff by Peter Drucker and um, I think he was one of my favorite authors. There was a couple other ones that I, I read, but uh, my, my mental safety net. So I, I think this is important for everybody leaving the surface because you have to make a transition. I mean, I can remember wearing civilian clothes every day, which was a difference. And then thinking that I had to put my hat on when I went outside, where's my hat? Where's my hat? Cause I had to wear the little air force hat and that's the change. I mean, that that's, and then at five o'clock, you know, I'm, I'm looking where I got to get out of my vehicle and salute, you know, <laughs> or stop my car. You know, there's little things that you don't do have to do anymore when you're out of the military and it's hard to like make that transition and you have to have a mental safety net. Right. So my mental safety net was, all right, I'm going to go after business with electronic companies for this this specialty, right? How to design your systems, how to do your test specs. What happens if it doesn't work? Right. And I said, you know what? Yeah. What's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario was I'm going to do a ton of networking and I can get a great job. That was my mental safety net. Uh Right. Yeah. 
So I knew that if I couldn't make it work, I could always parlay it. I mean, I did get job offers from some of my clients, right? They said, yeah. you want to come work here for us full time? And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm kind of liking the self-employment thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of got ruined early on, right? And there's another thing I want to talk about is if you're really successful too soon, that is also a problem. All right. There's a lot of skills you need to do to be successful as a business person, right? Number one is sales. You need to learn how to sell. I'm an engineer, okay? And I'm an arrogant jerk of an engineer. I'm going to say I'm like most other engineers. <laughs> you know, I had, I had this really good friend when I got out of the Air Force that was a PR person, public relations. Yeah. And she used to say, Michelle, you cannot tell people their babies are ugly. <laughs> right? So. You know, I mean, I'm an engineer and I'm working with all engineers and scientists. We're all arrogant, right? We're all arrogant. We think we're the top of the world. We think we're smarter than everybody else at Wright-Patterson. So I don't even know how arrogant I am, (laughs) right? I mean, I'm totally unconsciously incompetent to my own buffoonery, you know? Yeah. I, I I still see a lot of engineers like this and I just crack up. So Anyways, I had a lot to learn and I didn't even know I had a lot to learn. And I think humility and not having, you know, leaving your hubris at the door because you get a lot of awards in the air, in the military, right? You get a lot of accolades. They do a lot to develop you and you can walk around thinking that you are just fantastic. (laughs) The rest of the world doesn't see you that way. And um, you need to learn how to sell. So in order order to learn how to sell, you have to be relatable and you have to be able to understand and connect with people. And it takes some transition time to do that. It is a totally different skill set as an entrepreneur. And I was really successful right off the door with my first business. Okay. Yeah. You had a total inside track to the whole concept of government contracting or government consulting because I did. I did. And 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 I knew how to present and I was personable. And you had the and network. I, I mean, you already had you already knew who you're gonna call on before you even got out. I did, and I knew these people, yeah. right? And I, I called them and they were like, We need your help. And I created a little course. I created like a week-long course, and I was teaching that all over the place. And 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 then uh, you know, I moved away from Dayton, Ohio. I lived in Dayton, hey, Ohio my first I year. Question, I got a question for you. You said you created a course and you would go around teaching how to do this new concept of engineering, yeah. um, government contracting. How often was it? Cause I know people that have done similar things in the past and what they discovered was they didn't really want to learn how to do it. They wanted to hire somebody that would just do it for them. Did you run into that or were these I people did. really I, wanting I to did know? that. I, yes, I did run into that and I would do that. I would be, I did the consulting and the training. So and you so, think you're, you think you're teaching people how to do this and oftentimes they just hire you to do it for them. Right. So um, it was, it, I started hiring people to work for me. I'm 25 years old and I'm hiring retired generals to work for me. That was a trip, right? <laughs> that was really funny. And I had a whole proposal writing team. I helped the companies win uh, the proposals. I had a really good track record for that. Yeah. So uh, like 25 years old, I mean, I was kicking it. I was doing great. And, you know, I mean, I knew that the business had a half-life and it, and it, it did it for about five years. And uh, 
I got it really got into, this is where I got into accelerated learning because I wanted to do a better job of teaching. Okay. So, I mean, most people teach how they've been taught. Okay. And engineering, engineering isn't known for its like really scintillating learning environments. All right. So I got involved in these accelerated learning special interest groups to American train, Society of Training Development, and they're just called American Society of Development now, I think. But that's where I got into the whole accelerated learning thing. And I'd also met some other people that opened up some doors to me about teaching through these university extension programs. And so the university extension programs were willing to let me experiment with my accelerated learning, which was awesome. And I really realized my passion was for learning. My passion wasn't, I was gravitating away from what my subject matter expertise was. And there was another reason I wanted to shift to is because when you're a rocket scientist, right? That's, you know, people joke, she's a rocket scientist. You, it's hard to find other rocket scientists to grow your business. Yeah. Okay. So I was a successful one person show. At the, out the door at 25, right? Yeah. I was hiring retired generals. I had this one guy that was very well known in vibrations in the vibration world teaching with me. He was everybody and everybody teaching with me was in their sixties. Here I was 25. <laughs> and, you know, I did this, like I said, I did it for five years, but then I started to go into this university extension stuff and the accelerated learning and I wanted to move away from that field, but I also wanted to create a mass market product because, you know, I'm still the arrogant engineer. Okay. I still believe that I should be at the top of the food chain. I'm a space engineer. Yep. A, a one person company with a couple contractors is okay. But I aspire to, you know, being the next Bill Gates, right? Yeah. I wanted to be a bigger business. And I knew to be a bigger business, I had to do things much differently. And I didn't have the skills because it came too easy, right? I didn't have the sales skills. I didn't have what it took to really make that next big leap with my company. And it took me another 10 years to develop that. Wow. My the learning business, I got out and started my first company in 1987. I started making the pivot in 1992 to accelerated learning. I created a company in 95 that called Wired for Success, where I wanted to do all my training virtually, right? Because I was way ahead of stuff. I mean, I'm doing DARPA in that in 1987, right? Yeah. I'm integrating with all of my clients in their servers virtually. Right, because I had clients all over the country. They're all defense contractors. I'm working in their servers virtually with a dial-up. Okay, so I was me and um, Al Gore created the internet. I'm just kidding, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, I mean, so I'm working virtually well before everybody else, and I saw the writing on the wall. I wanted to create a series of courses using accelerated learning and the internet. And this was 1995, and I had this company called Wired for Success, and I had 300 colleges selling my training. Wow. How much money did I make with that company? Zippo. It was the bleeding edge. Nobody was signing up for online learning in 1995. Okay? You're before and, your time. Uh, 
If, yeah. And so there's something else that people don't talk about when you're an entrepreneur. Your wife, Joe, must be a saint. <laughs> it's very hard to be married to an entrepreneur, yep. right? <laughs> yep. Because one of the things that people don't tell you, if you're passionate about what you do, you do it for 18 hours a day. All right. I am like so passionate about my business. And I'm still, I call them, I call them entrepreneurs, right? Everybody you talk to, you're talking about your entrepreneurial interests, right? <laughs> and you, you, you live, you breathe, you eat your business. You're that passionate about it. So that's, this is, I mean, like, yeah. this is what it takes. This is what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. Uh, my first husband left me. Wow. He had, he had married an aerospace engineer. He had not married an entrepreneur. It's a big shift. I mean, it's a huge mental, yeah, it's a huge mental shift. Yeah. Um, and he jokes that he sold his motorcycle to start up my first business, which was true. <laughs> he did. He sold his motorcycle to fund my first oh business my. and uh <laughs> great guy, but he's right. I didn't pay any attention to him. You know, we had two kids. I was busy with the kids. He was like down, he was like number five on my list. Yeah. Right. Who wants to be married to number five? Who's five? I mean, I I can't say that at all that I blamed him for leaving our marriage. I was an entrepreneur, and that's something to think about for anybody in the military. It's like yeah. your spouse yeah. married you know married you maybe right before you yeah. went in the military, or married you while you were in the military, and now yeah. you're getting out and you're going to go be an entrepreneur. That's a huge mental shift for your spouse, right? Yourself. And you know. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that works and one of the things I know was worked for me, your spouse has to be involved in your business. Bottom line. I mean, your spouse has to, you have two different complementary skill sets, right? Your spouse has to be involved in your business because, and they have to be passionate about it and it has to be together because otherwise the spouse doesn't get any time or attention. Mm. And if, you know, cause, uh, I got married a second time. My spouse was involved in the business. Um, that was another set of problems. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like some people would say, no, you don't want your spouse involved in your well, business. Well, it depends. I mean, it depends what your business is and it depends what you're like. Um, I mean, there were, there were other issues with that uh, besides uh, just it, it, the business part was okay. Um, but my part, current partner now is very involved in the company and, and basically we've been doing the business together for five years and uh, but it took, a, it took a little while to assimilate into it. But the, if the spouse is involved in the business and when you're spending 18 hours a day in the business, you're doing it together. And, and I know a lot of successful couples that are in business together. And like, I think you mentioned that you, you wanted to include your wife in on your calendar. I mean, like you have to make a conscious effort of how are you going to make the transition with your family? My kids joke that they did not have a childhood. They had an internship. And <laughs> I mean, I had, I had always set up our computers because this was before um, we all had desktops. I had an office and my kids had their computers in my office. We would all be in my office together. But we had an electronic hour. We had to quit. We had to all get off our electronics and make dinner together every night. That was a rule. And we had more than it was like from five to eight, we had no electronics. We just were together as a family. Um, but, you know, so you have to set some parameters. And so there are some challenges to shifting to an entrepreneur. And, you know, you have to be conscious of that. It's not like, oh, I'm going to suddenly make it big. I mean, like I joked, I was an overnight success when I hit it big with Cheetah Learning. 
but it took me 15 years. It wasn't, I started my first business in 87. In 95, I tanked my first company in a big way. I lost my house. I lost my marriage. I lost my company, right? And I had to start over, right? So failure is a big part of being an entrepreneur. And I ended up moving back to the East Coast. I was living in Seattle and I bought a house three miles from my parents and I cashed in on my aerospace engineering degree and I got a job as a research scientist for United Technologies. And I had to do that because I was tapped out. I put everything into that company with the 300 colleges and I worked my tail off and it got nowhere and I was just bleeding money. And so I just started over and I learned a lot with that experience. So I think that being an entrepreneur, you have to expect massive flaming failure at some point in time in your career. It's just part of it. Yeah. All right. And uh, you have to regroup from that. So I regrouped from it. And one of the things I learned was that I needed to create what was called an evergreen product. Now, yeah. And the day of technology where everything is always changing, how do you create an evergreen product? Yeah. Well, and luckily for me, when I was a research scientist, they let me keep studying my accelerated learning. And I had this awesome mentor who said, you know, I just found this awesome course I think you need to go to. And it was about how to create accelerated learning curriculum. Uh-huh. And I said, great. So I went to it. And while I was there, I knew I had to create something evergreen. And I knew in our office that we were had a massive problem with project management. And because I was doing facilitation on recovering people's disasters and their projects, because I was a good facilitator. Yeah. And so I said, you know, the world needs a really good project management course out there. And um, I came back from that course and I was talking to my boss and I said, you know, how would you feel about me creating a project management course with this accelerated learning uh, techniques I just learned? She says, well, we already are sending folks to a five day project management course. And I'm like, well, I'm doing a lot of project disaster recovery. So I'm not really sure that that course is helping us. And uh, she said, well, I want you to create a facilitations course because your facilitation skills are amazing and we need to be teaching that. When you say disaster recovery, you mean someone gets into a project and turns it into a disaster and you go in and fix it. Yeah, and relaunch it. Not like a hurricane hit disaster recovery. No, no, yeah, no. A project management disaster. (laughs) So so I was at a research center and there was about 2,500 engineers and scientists and we all think we're fantastic, right? And, you know, engineers and scientists think they can do it all, okay? You're smart in one area. Of course, you've got to be smart in every area, which isn't true. And uh, so we had 150 people who called themselves project managers in that environment. And we had 250 different ways of doing projects. That's a real problem. Wow. Yeah. Right? That's every time they started the project, they started it differently. So they got rid of my department. So shortly after I had asked my boss about creating this course, she, she said no. But they liked my facilitation skills because I was the one facilitating project disaster recovery. So I ended up reporting to the head of the company and I facilitated four big meetings a year. That was my main job, these huge like interdepartment meetings. And I was the facilitator. So I asked my boss if he cared if I tested out some of these ideas to create a one day course for project management, he goes, go for it. Right. So I did. And I created an accelerated learning way of doing projects which was fascinating. So it combined 
some really cool neuro techniques, a metacognition programming and project management and some process work to teach people how to do projects in one day. And I started teaching it for all of the divisions. So United Technologies at the time, I don't think they've been sold, bought and sold so many times. I don't know what they're called now, but they had like um, carrier air conditioning, Otis elevators, Sikorsky helicopter, Pratt and Whitney engines. So I'm teaching my one day class for all of these divisions, right? Yeah. And carrier loved it. Carrier transit Corp loved it. They're flying me to Georgia all the time to teach it. Huh. So my boss calls me into the office and he says, you know, we are an engineering research center. We're not a training center. And I said, really, you guys just built this big quality training thing over there. And they're like, well, yeah, you're making them look bad. But I said, well, that's interesting. He goes, well, we don't want you to stop teaching your class. And I'm like, really? Do you know what call the general manager at Carrier Transit Hold and let him know that because he's expecting me down there to teach the next batch of people next week. He, the bo- I'm, let's make sure I got this straight. The boss said we want you to stop teaching your class? Yeah. Really? Yeah, because I was making him look bad. Wow. I was making the other, this other quality thing they had that wasn't, that wasn't, yeah. was, wasn't designed with any level of rigor or their program. It was, it was PowerPoints. Okay. That nobody learns from PowerPoints. Right. All right. PowerPoints. Are, the only person who learns from a PowerPoint is when we put together the PowerPoint. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you're passive, passive, just sitting watching a PowerPoint. I mean, this is why you drink so much coffee at these things <laughs> because it's so boring. It's a lesson in boredom tolerance. That's not what my program was about. My program was highly interactive. I mean, people would go home and they would dream about my program. They would be very interactive and doing things with their group. And I mean, you're just the guide on the side in my programs, the teacher, right? You're facilitating an event and experience. And so um, he goes, we have a new job for you in this reliability office, this electronic reliability office, you know, full circle back to the first business I yeah. started, right? He goes, we know you're really good at that. We've seen your papers, you're well published. We'd like you doing research science in there. And I'm like, you know, I've outgrown that. <laughs> I think that my mark in the world is going to be with this accelerated learning and project management because it's metacognition. I mean, when you learn how to get from point A to point B in a much more efficient manner, you light up the world, right? You get your projects done much more quickly. You achieve your goals faster because this, what I created is a way to really achieve your goals like five times faster. So I said, you know, I said, that's not really what is in store for me here. He goes, well, we're happy to let you take your program and leave. And I'm like, yes, I'm an entrepreneur. (laughs) So I saved a lot of money. I learned from my mistakes. I saved a lot of money while I was in that job. And uh, so I left and I started up Cheetah, which was one, it was a one day program to, to learn and do projects. And so I wrote my first book and in order to be taken seriously, I had to become what was called project management professional certified. Yeah. And I and how people were prepping. And at the time PMP behind your name, right? PMP. I needed PMP behind my name. And this is funny. My book doesn't have PMP behind my name, but I'm a PMP. So I don't know why I didn't put that on this book, but <laughs> anyways, cause this book isn't about the PMP. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit, but uh, I looked at how people were prepping to become PMP certified. And at the time the book for the project management body of knowledge looked like a mill spec. 
right? Now it doesn't. But then in 2001, it looked like a mill spec. And I'm like, there's no way people need to spend six months studying this. Yeah. I said, I can create an accelerated learning way to do this. And so I did. I created a way to pass the PMP in four days. All right. So that's what took off my company. It wasn't the one day approach that I created as a research scientist. But unless I had done that, I would have never, ever come up with the product that made me hundreds of millions of dollars. All right. So now before, when I started, before your course, how long did most people typically study or prepare to take the PMP? And it's even that it's still today. Okay. Most people spend from six months to two years and the passing rate is 40%. 40% of the people, 60% of people fail the PMP exam on their first attempt. Okay. So with Cheetah, we do it in four days. We still do it in four days. The program is still the same. We just update the content as the exam changes. We use an accelerated learning approach that just transcends everything. I mean, it's a massive transformative learning experience, no matter who takes it, for what reason they go on to achieve all of their projects faster. They learn much quicker. They're able to take many, many more tests and do much better on them. So it's, we teach accelerated learning and to validate that they have mastered accelerated learning in four days, they go and they actually pass the PMP exam on the fifth day. And so my pass rate is 98%, right? Really? So yeah, 98%? we've had 80,000 80, students since 2001. 80,000? 80,000 students. My company grew really fast after that. All right. <laughs> so though I, but what's really fascinating is when I started in 2001, I am PMP number 37,166 or something like that. Right. Yeah. So that means there was 37,000 people PMPs in the 20 years before I became PMP certified because PMP had been around for 20 years. Or maybe it was 15 years when I became certified. I think it was 15 years. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now in 2023, so we're 23 years later, there's 1.4 million PMPs. So we went from 37,000 in the first 15 years and the next 23 years up to 1.4 million. We had a ton of copycats, right? So there are a ton of people copied our program. It was hard to keep going after them. And I just stopped because it was just ridiculous. So that was a lot of fun. And the company grew really fast. We ended up with five training centers all over the country, a couple hundred people working. We became internationally well-known. We had licensees all over the place. I was running to keep up at Kachita, <laughs> right? Yeah. And uh, that was very exciting, but it also was extremely taxing. And I started to get sick, right? Because I was just, I mean, one year I slept in 85 different locations and I was doing presentations all over the place and yeah. it just wasn't a sustainable lifestyle. Okay. Right. And so I started bringing the company down in size and it took a while to do that. And I wanted to take it back over because when you have 30 trainers, it's hard to change anything. Right. And so there was a bunch of changes I wanted to make. I saw there was massively changes in our brains. Our brains were changing because of technology. So we had massive anxiety problems, massive distraction problems, a lot more um, focus issues, right? And I knew I needed to change the program. 
but I couldn't do that with as many trainers. So, you know, gradually through attrition, I brought it down in 2019. I was able to take back over the company 100%, which was awesome. And it was just in time. (laughs) I could never have predicted what happened next, but it was great that I had taken it over because we had to totally pivot from the classroom to virtual. So now come first full circle. What had I done in 1995? I had created accelerated learning and online learning in 1995. Okay. So when COVID hit, I pivoted and I brought that back. I created a really cool accelerated learning online virtual live experience for the PMP. And that is also now very difficult to copy because before I had all these people copy it. right? Right. So I learned and I have this, we have this awesome experience now that's virtual live. It's really fun. It's based on this story because story anchors you into learning. That's all on this fictional Alaska town. And they learn the concepts to pass the PMP exam in four days based on this story that they're all a part of creating this story together in the virtual live classroom. And still our pass rate's even higher. They spend four days with us. They go take the test on the fifth day. And now our pass rate's even higher. It's almost, almost everybody passes on Friday. I mean, I think we've put uh, probably 500 people through over the past couple of years. Our numbers are a lot lower, which is fine with me. But uh, um, I think we've had maybe five people not pass out of 500 in the past three years since we rolled out this new program. So, that, you know, you have to constantly reinvent yourself, too, if you're an entrepreneur. And you have to decide what's important to you. It's not important to me anymore to have a 200-person company. I did that. Been there, done that. Do not want to do it again. I'm happy with my seven-person business right now. We do great. We make great money. I have no bills. Everything is paid for. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, you know, I call it, I'm, I'm like 61. I call it my semi-retirement gig. So, but I've had quite the wild ride with this. I mean. Yeah, no kidding. It's, it's been exciting. And, uh, I, you know, it was funny when I went and got a job and in, in the middle of this, you know, my job After was only like. Yeah. Usually yeah. we say once you've been a successful entrepreneur, you become unemployable. Uh, they hired me because I was an entrepreneur, but they didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it's, like you're too successful. They got rid of you because you were an entrepreneur. <laughs> they did get rid of me because I was an entrepreneur. Well, I could have stayed if I was willing to not be an entrepreneur, but I wasn't willing to not be an entrepreneur, but it was a great, I call it my employed vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I mean, still obviously had a business going on the side. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, I never, I never stopped doing businesses because one of the things I learned um, doing that company in 95 was how to design websites. So I had a web design company for probably eight years and I still did the web design business when I was employed. Yeah. I was creating a lot of big community sites and stuff. And it, that helped me a ton with my business as well. Um, well, so, hey, Michelle, we're, 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 we're way beyond our time normal. Um, okay. so we do kind of need to wrap this up. I want to ask you, like, if somebody's interested in your, in your cheetah learning program, how do we find you? Well, you find me at cheetahlearning.com and that's where we have the PMP. I highly recommend getting the PMP because it opens up so many doors for you, right? Yeah. Uh, this program, Cheetah Agile Projects, is something I did in 2021 and I wanted to see if I could write a book in two weeks. Um, and I created this methodology. I've been doing it anyways. So I created this really cool technique called Cheetah Agile Projects and it's how to finish significant projects in two weeks. And uh, I use it all the time. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a really great technique. So I'm offering that program for 500 bucks off for your listeners. And uh, awesome. we can put it up on your site for that. 
But uh, one of the things with Cheetah Agile Projects is I have it tied in with LinkedIn. And LinkedIn Agile Project, Agile Certified Project Managers start at 120 grand a year. So when you you become Cheetah Agile Certified in the 20-hour program, you'll learn Agile. And it really will help you get projects done in two weeks. That's something that people say everything about Cheetah Programs is, my God, it did exactly what they said it would do. Yeah. So awesome. you will learn how to finish projects in two weeks and significant projects, not just trivial ones. And uh, you'll be a huge boom to anybody. Like this is my backup, the backup thing. It's you're going to have a backup plan. You know, you have to have plan B. Like you have to be able to go take that employee vacation when you flame out miserably as an entrepreneur, which is going to happen. Yeah. If you're a good entrepreneur, you've got to have a couple really good failures under your belt. Yeah, Absolutely. Entrepreneurship yeah. is a process. It's a process. And, and it's a business. It's a, you go, and, the more yeah. times you've been through that process from beginning to end, the better right. entrepreneur you become. And, and if you're afraid of failure, go get a job. Okay. Yeah, because, absolutely. right. You can't be afraid of failure as an entrepreneur. You're going to fail. You're going to flame out big. You have to have a safety net. You have to have your backup plan. Anyways, this Cheetah Agile Project is your 20 hour backup plan. You can become Cheetah Agile certified. And, uh, you know, I love, and I love working with veterans. I've worked with a lot of veterans over the years. Uh-huh. So, and you know, that's what you do in the military, regardless of maybe what your MOS is, is you, you start from scratch and you, you basically create a project and rapidly accelerate through it. And the project finishes and then you, you leave and you go, then you go on to the next project. Right. So that yeah. process of project management is a very familiar concept to most military folks. So, um, you know, one of those things, Project management is a great thing for military folks to go into. So, um, it is. well, okay. So what I, I do want to give you the last word. You got anything else um, you want to hit us with real quick uh, right before we wrap it up? I just say, go for it. I mean, if there's any, if there's any inkling in your mind at all, that you want to give this a shot, give it a shot. You will learn so much about yourself and, and you'll make a big contribution. I mean, it's not just about you. It's about what are you sharing with the world? And entrepreneurs share with the world. And that's why we do what we do. We have a love for it. I mean, so find out yeah. something that you really love. It doesn't matter if it's right. Okay. You're going to change what you do, what you initially start and think your business is about. It's going to change and it naturally should. So I would just recommend that you go for it. Awesome. Well, Michelle, great story. I mean, we could go on for, for hours longer, but yeah. you know, of course we try to keep it on a reasonable level, but uh <laughs> Um, just a, a wealth of information and uh, a, a lot of experience in the entrepreneurial world. Um, really, really enjoyed talking with you. And, uh, you know, thanks for sharing your entrepreneurial success story and look forward to seeing your future success in your retirement, your retirement gig you got going here. Yeah. I <laughs> retired you know, after project. I'm just, I'm just only, I'm down to working like 50 hours a week instead of 100. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's awesome. All right, Michelle. Yep. Right. These two veterans are Oscar Mike. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Veteran on the Move, your pathfinder to freedom. If you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Reviews are always greatly appreciated. So until next time, this veteran is Oscar Mike.